good. Don't miss a minute of the Sean Hannity Show. I know that there is a segment of, of society that would love a perpetual shutdown, and I guess we could live in a bubble, but who's going to build the bubble if everybody shuts down? Weekday afternoon, starting at 2 on Super Talk 1270. It's time for Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. Talk of the Town, brought to you by... Big boy, just get in line. It moves fast. Dakota Pharmacy and Dakota Natural Health Center. We're here to help you stay well. Trademark Realty, Peak Automotive and Service, and Silver Ranch. Good morning, my friends. It is a finally Friday on Superdoc 1270's Talk of the Town. I'm Steve Bakken, and uh, coming up this morning, we're going to talk about Missouri River a little bit later uh, with Ken Royce. Also, uh, giving Hearts Day is around the corner and how you can give to tobacco-free North Dakota. Uh, we'll talk about that with the program director, Andrew Horn, coming up at the bottom of the hour. Joining us right now, like we do each and every Friday, uh, the home of the Bismarck Bobcats, Superdoc 1270, and Tom Briggle joining us. And uh, Tom... Another great weekend last weekend, um, although due to conditions uh, uh, unforeseen, you only got one game down in St. Cloud, but it was a win. It was a win. So, uh, yeah, if it wasn't for radiator hoses blowing up in the, the Northland, we'd be with a half pair. But <laughs> something about uh, the exit 10 miles east of Bismarck that hasn't been kind to us that time. And so... Uh, <laughs> So radiator hose blew up, and uh, thank God we kept uh, the Black Beauty, our last bus, and so I got us down there for uh, for Saturday. Uh, but the game on Saturday, you know, every, you know, Lane's been saying, and everyone's saying in our division, you know, every point is so important. And so we came out with two. We've won six in a row now, and tonight we're down in uh, Mason City, Iowa, and uh, got a pair against them, and and we'll see what that brings. We've been pretty dominant, you know, against them, but um, they're just dangerous. Anyone, literally, anyone can beat anyone, and you can't take them lightly. So that's what Lane is stressing with the boys this week. And um, making a push, time to make a push. You know, uh, playing St. Cloud last weekend, and it would have been nice to get two under the belt, but uh, makeup game uh, going to be a little bit later in the season uh, for that game. Um you guys are, are they're clicking. The the team is clicking right now and, and Lane's doing a great job of kinda well, I don't I don't know if I want to say managing expectations, but kinda they have the boys playing within themselves. It, it, you don't have anybody going off on a flyer or doing stupid stuff or hey, putting all the weight on them and they gotta score all the goals or come up with that heart. It's a team. It, 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 it yeah. is an incredible team right now. Yeah, it, it is a good team. And, uh, you know, Lane has done a good job and Hunter, too, of, of managing the boys. The other thing that we got going for us that way, uh, not to take away from Lane or Hunter, is that so uh, two of our captains have been with us for four years. You know, Johnson, Beeks, you know, they've been with us for four years and Roloff, too, and uh, so we have terrific leadership in the locker room and, uh, you know, they kind of know what it takes. Uh, and they also know what it means to be a team versus individuals. And so, uh, the, the locker room is really good, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, you can see that when they come on to the ice that they're supportive of each other and it's just been really, 
really fun. But having said that, you know, Minot's really good. Thank Cloud. I mean, when we, we've been beating them, but by a goal, right? And uh, so we're just trying to get geared up. Um, you know, and the other thing is out uh, Aberdeen, for some reason, has gone like 10 and 1 or something like that. They've been, they've found it. So nothing's going to be easy, but we're gearing up for, uh, you know, hopefully a playoff run. And, and uh, we're all excited about the prospects. We think we have a really good club. So when you're looking at uh, the team and that that team aspect, and you're because mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned is, of course, the captains you've had for a long time and four years. That's not the norm in the NAHL uh, as far as having mm-hmm. a captain in the program. That plays into a lot of the cohesiveness in the locker room. And the chemistry in the locker room is so vitally important, especially going down the home stretch. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about that chemistry because uh, you've got some new talent coming in. And uh, you got to make sure that's a good fit in the locker room besides just on the ice. And we're going to talk about that and who's coming in when we come back from the break. We're talking with Tom Briggle, owner of the Bismarck Bobcats, who are on a roll. They're down in North Iowa playing the North Iowa Bulls in Mason City this weekend. You can catch all the action right here on Super Talk 12. Everyone. Super Talk 1270. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve Bogg along with Tom Briggle, Bismarck Bobcats owner, and uh, they are on the road this weekend. North Iowa Bulls, game time 710. Uh, both tonight and tomorrow night. You can catch all the action starting at 7 o'clock right here on Super Talk 1270. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, making that run for the playoffs. And one of the things as you're doing that is chemistry. Because, of course, we're talking about um, you've got a seasoned team. You've got two captains that have been with the team for four years. Locker room matters uh, probably more so than out on the ice in a lot of cases uh, as far as a team and cohesiveness. Late in the season, when you start mixing it up a little bit because you're bringing in some different pieces, some different assets, um, you have to be cognizant of what the locker room looks like. Um, but usually it's pretty good when you got some captains that have been around for a long time. You've got three new assets, uh, three new players that are coming into the Bobcats you guys are taking a look at right now for that push towards the cup. Uh, walk us through those players and give us a little background on each one of those. Yeah, so we'll we'll start with Jake Peterson. He's a boy. He's uh, from Rosemont, Minnesota, and he was uh, he was the captain of the Springfield Blues and uh, their leading defending scorer, but also like their third leading scorer on their team. But he also was a two way guy, and so we're real excited to to have him in. We had to give up some assets and uh, a young boy named Connor Broadhead. The fans will know, but. Connor, it's a good move for him. He's an 05 and just he needs more ice time. Uh, and so, you know, Jake's coming into Bismarck. And, and then secondly, and we talked a little bit last week about a boy coming in. He's from Kazakhstan, um, Alexander Kim. And he played in Finland. And so he made it in on Sunday night. And um, he was jet lagged for the first couple, three days. Pretty bad, but what we've seen in him is he just has a rocket shot, just a rocket shot. Now, are we like are, NHL. Are, are we talking Mighty Ducks rocket shot, or are we talking Happy Gilmore rocket shot? 
Well, you know, I think someone alluded to him as Happy Gilmore. And so, <laughs> so he's a glass I, breaker. I, I, he was, yeah, he was on the coaching show there. His English is perfect, and he just gets it. Like So we're excited to have him in a lot of ways. But <clears throat> one thing about him is that he's played on Olympic ice his whole life. And so tonight will be the first time he plays a game on an NHL week. It's the first time he's been in America, actually, is uh, joining us. And so it'll be really... I'm, you know, everyone's excited to see how the shot kind of can get translated into the hockey. He's young. He's an old five and our league is physical. So it's going to be an adjustment for him. Um, might take a month to get used to it, just the time and space and physicality. But we love what we've seen so far. So we're real excited about. Um, bringing him in, and, and, and we've, thirdly, we, we've talked about the spacing and the difference between Olympic ice yeah. versus NHL ice, and, and the spacing and the timing of the passes. Um, that's all. It, it takes a while to acclimate to that, especially when you've never played on that uh, NHL size ice. But the one thing that does equate that I, I'm because we haven't talked about this um, when you read a scouting report uh, for the NHL scouts, one of the categories is. And and scouts love they beam this when they can go and the kids got a heavy shot that that yeah. equates that, that it doesn't matter what size ice you're on that equates yeah it makes yeah it makes the difference between you know being a goal scorer and not being a goal scorer particularly when you get to you know the higher levels without a doubt and so he's got you know, he's got the hardest shot on our team for sure and well, like I said it might be as hard or harder than Ryan Taylor's who was with us about three years ago. And so he's got that going for him well, for and, sure. But and, the other and, thing and, is and, got, and where it makes a difference, too, is once you get that reputation and people know that, okay, this kid's got a heavy shot, he's got that hard shot, you start getting defensemen that are a little bit more leery about laying down in front of that shot. That opens up some well, more hope, lanes. Yeah, I hope so. Like his shot, his shot uh, for sure. And, of course, he's gonna he's a winger. And so he's a right-handed winger, so probably he's going to be on our left side, uh, the offside on our power plays, and where some where something like that can, it's like Beaumont. Beaumont will be on the right side. He can be on the left side. Uh, and with that rocket shot, when you get that goalie, like you're on a power play, you get that goalie having to move over. Well, it might be behind him before he strides, right? And so that's what we're excited to, to see with him. But to your point, for sure, uh, you know, there's always things like uh, size and, and skill and all of that. But one of them is definitely that a, a difference maker is the, you know, the velocity of shot. And in his case, it's not even a necessarily a heavy slapper. He has a, he has a wrist shot. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> the release is just, you know, Mike Madonna, right? Well, and, and, and so. And, and the other side of that, too, is, and I'm a firm believer, 85% of goals are scored off a rebound. Beaumont's going to love this. Uh, without a doubt. The, the whole team, you know, they love having him in. And, you know, he's going to help us win. And, and we can talk about that a little bit, uh, too, uh, in terms of when you do bring in new players. Of course, he does change the locker room a little bit. And um, But at the end of the day, well, let me talk about the third player, and then we'll come back to that. Um, so the... We've talked over time, and the fans have heard like and, and know that when you're building a, a championship team or possibly a championship team, you need all the pieces. And one of the pieces that we're not so strong in, we have terrific skill, terrific skill, and but we don't haven't had a lot of grit. And so, if you look in the stats, 
you know, I think that we have like uh, 300 penalty minutes um, versus some teams are like seven, eight, and 900 minutes. And we, we play such a skill on a speed game, which serves us well. But, you know, when he gets the playoffs, you got to have all the pieces. And so we, we picked up a boy, um, his name, and I'll, I'll mess it up. He's French Canadian, but it's Mateau Bergeau, I think. And he, uh, he is a second leading scorer. He's a hockey player too, like a good hockey player. I'm not talking about fighting. I'm talking about finishing checks. And he's just, he's a he's a big kid, six two, two twenty or two fifteen, I guess. But he's got 102 penalty minutes. Well, that's a third of what we have as a team. And so when we play the Minots and we play the St. Clouds and we play the Austins, it, the, the fans will say, "Well, we come on, we're and we have, we've been winning at times." Minot still. Uh, uh, it was a little fluky over Christmas, but, um, you know, they're physical and we're just not that physical. So we added this player and, you know, he's actually got on a plane, he's flying to Minneapolis today so he can join us in, in Mason City. He's ready to go. And so he would be the third piece that we've added most recently. Um, yeah, you and met- we're excited to have him. <laughs> so it kind of gets down to this whole thing like, why would we do that? Because uh, the word we're using, like, we're all in. We're all in. Uh, on the team because the team, even without the ads, we think is really solid. Uh, but we've gone all in giving up a lot of assets and players and cash gets involved um, as well uh, because we just want to win a championship and we for sure want to get into the playoffs and we for sure want to go to the lobby. And then once you get there, it's kind of like, who knows, right? Um, but we're all in. And so we're excited about this run the final rosters have to be set on uh, the 10th, February 10th. Uh, and so after that, um, it's go time. And uh, the Bobcats are all in because we think we have a super team. And by adding these other fellows, we think we have a really good team. And uh, so we're, we're pretty excited. So Beaumont won't have to be the toughest guy on the team anymore because he currently is. He's <laughs> I love that kid. He is just a little firecracker. Um, but you mentioned the penalty minutes. It's like, um, it, I'm thinking back to one game. It's like Austin's got more penalty minutes in one game against you guys than you guys have uh, all season long. It's kind of crazy. So bringing in a guy. Yeah. But, okay, so backing up a little bit to last year, and that was one of the knocks yeah. on the team last year was the physicality. You didn't have that guy that yeah. went, yeah, yeah. We're not starting crap here. Not on our ice. Uh, you didn't have that guy. Yeah. Um, it, you've, yeah. you've got a little bit more physical this year, a little bit more size this year to back that up, bringing that player in that's going to be that physical stopper. That uh, And I don't want to call him an enforcer because there's a connotation to enforcer that, okay, yeah. you're just a goon and you're there to fight and you're not there. Uh, no, this kid's got a skill set. He's got a great skill set. So uh, kind of the best of all worlds um, really yeah. brings a lot of balance to the Bobcats. Yeah. And the word you're looking for a little bit is he's an agitator. And uh, so um, we've had agitators at times, but this guy, he's just in your face. And what it does for a hockey team is two things. One is it causes a little anxiety, you know, in the other club. Because um, at times we are just simply out physical right now. But this guy will be a little bit more of a, a leveler, if you will. And But it also makes the other boys on the ice feel more comfortable to know that you do have, you know, a bigger, stronger physical player, agitator that's not afraid to... Uh, to mix it up a little bit if he has to. And I'm not talking about fighting. I hate that fighting, but 
finishing a check uh, to the point where, uh, you know, next time the boy goes in the corner, he's looking over his shoulder. Those are all things that this fellow um, will, uh, will help bring. And, and, and Mateo, that's his reputation. Uh, he plays, uh, he's a hard-nosed player. And so we needed that. And, and now we've got it. So we think we have, you know, the pieces in place that are D is solid. Our goaltenders have been really good, like one, four, five in the last two months. Uh, goals against and you know are we going to win it we don't know our league is tough but uh, like I said we're all in and Nico Kapitanovic our, our scout he's just done a terrific job of, of working with Lane and Hunter to bring in some really good talent so um, we'll see what happens hopefully the boys stay healthy and uh, that's always a key at this time of year and <clears throat> we get to add one more player it's called a tender ad but not till March, and, and what that is, is a boy that we've tendered for next year that uh, can come in and play for us this year. So that'll be an important uh, piece, too. And then then we're good to go. I'm looking forward to a great stretch drive. Uh, looking forward to the uh, the additions because the team already is fun to watch. It's a fun team to watch. You got the talent. You got the pieces. And kind of that little cherry on top. We're going to see if that uh, can get the Bobcats over the hump, get them the cup this year. Um, you guys, like you said, Tom, you are all in, and the team looks great. Now it just comes down to the health and and making that stretch run. So looking forward to some of the transitions, making sure that the, uh, the chemistry on the ice and off the ice all fits together. Kind of a magic team this year, and I'm not going to jinx it, but I like what I'm seeing, my friend. Uh, I hope so. You know, I tell the fans, like, you've kind of talked about these new players, and, um, you know, if they are listening and, and they want to watch these players play tonight, you know, they can run down to um, Stage Stop over in Mandan and, um, and and watch the game if they want on, they got on, the, on the big screen. And, um, they could, they could do that. They could also run down to Lucky's, Lucky's, and Main Bar of Bismarck. Um, they also are playing all the games, and kind of fun, kind of fun to hang out. And um, you know, so so take a look. Uh, game next week. We only have one game, and it's already sound like crazy. And so we're trying to encourage people to uh, get their tickets to a Saturday night game against Minot. We have a home and home game with them, and so that'll be a a really a good test for us. And I got a feeling um, it's going to be a physical series next weekend. We'll talk about that next Friday. Like you said, though, get your yeah. tickets early because that is a game I guarantee will sell out, like many of the games have yeah. sold out this year. Uh, Tom, oh. best of luck down in Iowa, North Iowa Bulls uh, tonight. You can go to NHL TV, some of those other venues, or catch all the games and all the actions all season long right here on the home of the Bismarck Bobcats, Super Talk 12-7. Talk of the Bucket weekday morning starting at 9 on Super Talk 12-70. And the free Super Talk 1270 mobile app. Talk of the Town, brought to you by Big Boy. Just get in line, it moves fast. Dakota Pharmacy and Dakota Natural Health Center. We're here to help you stay well. Trademark Realty, Peak Automotive and Service, and Silver Ranch. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270.
1270, you're two to talk of the town. I'm Steve Bakken. Joining us on the program, uh, Andrew Horn with Tobacco Free North Dakota. Andrew, uh, you're the coalition program director, and uh, um, we're going to get to the, the component with uh, Giving Hearts Day because there's a way to, to give to Tobacco Free North Dakota and, and help with tobacco cessation. Uh, you guys really focus a lot. Uh, on the elementary schools and and kind of stopping it before it starts that's really the best way isn't it yeah uh, the the earlier we can get ahead of the nicotine dependence and the the more i guess the more information we can get to these kids younger the better chance they have of, of never getting addicted um you know cdc data shows that about nine and ten people who end up using these products are addicted before they're 18 and that number is even held true after the purchase age was raised to 21. So it's it definitely we gotta we gotta get those elementary, middle schoolers the information so they can make the best choices. And the products have changed. We're gonna get that into a couple uh, in a couple minutes, but because um, I want to go through how tobacco use or nicotine use has really changed because it's not necessarily about the tobacco anymore. It's about the nicotine and the delivery system for that. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but uh, give our listeners a little bit of an oversight. Uh, Tobacco-Free North Dakota, a little history of the program. Uh, It's been around for a while and uh, it's really done a a great job of reducing some of those addiction numbers when it comes to tobacco use. Yeah, we've been around for nearly 40 years. I mean, if, if you think about it, we were around before the Master Settlement Agreement. We were around before North Dakota raised the tax the last time in, in 1993. And, I mean, if you think of how things have changed just in the tobacco realm since, you know, the mid-'80s to today, it's a completely different world. And we're always having to reinvent ourselves. We're always having to stay on top of the new trends, and, and we've been pretty successful in doing that. And really, the way we do that is continuing the education and advocacy work that our our founded our organization was based on. Okay, I'm going to date myself here because I was in high school and I remember when the initiative started. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and and I didn't use tobacco, but I had friends that did. And, and um, you know, kind of a question is like, okay, if anybody that followed politics at that age, and, and me and my friends were geeky enough to actually do that because it started out as a political agenda. Um, and that's where it's got it. It, it. It's springboard that we have to address tobacco use in North Dakota. And, and I remember I probably had a third of the people I knew that were using tobacco products in high school. And most of them were chewing, not smoking, but about a third of them quit. Um, just at the impetus of the program, by the time that uh, we graduated high school, they were like, yeah, uh, probably not the best idea for me. And, and did change some lives uh, initially out of the gate. I, I remember that, and I'm dating myself a little bit, but um, over the years, that impact has really trended up. I mean, they've done a great job. Yeah, this is, I appreciate the shout out with that. Um, you're not the only political geek. Remember, I grew up 60 miles north of D.C., so here I was at five, <laughs> six, seven years old following the Master Settlement Agreement, following uh, at that time Maryland was doing the tobacco buyout for farmers and switching their switching crops over. So I remember all that part of it as well. But, no, you're you're absolutely right. The more information we've gotten out there, the better it's been for people to make the decisions for themselves. We're, we're not forcing people to quit. We are giving the information and we're giving them all the support that they need 
in order to make an informed decision. And I'm sure that when you were uh, when you were younger and saw some of these stuff initially, you would probably label it as negative messaging. You saw all about the dangers of what the stuff could do and how how damaging it could be to your body. And what we've really found in the last you know eight to ten years is that that kind of messaging doesn't work anymore. So you can't just go yell at someone to quit you know to quit smoking. It can actually have the opposite effect and make them harden their position. So what? really, we're, you know, we're here to support the community. Anyone who's using these products, there's a lot of support available for them if they want to make a quit attempt. Well, it's and, about and, ten and, to and, twelve and, times on average to, and, to and, fully quit. And, and I remember because. I was a geek back then. I followed the legislature and, and there was a cognizant effort. It's like, we need to make sure that it's people's decision. We're not going to dictate as government on what people should do. And, and that was a, a big discussion during the legislative session when this really came into fruition. They, they were cognizant of the fact that people need to make their own decisions, but we need to be able to facilitate them having the information to make the correct decision for themselves. You know, that was kind of... Um, the impetus, and then I remember uh, the other big change was when bars were no smoking. I mean, because I, I, again, I'm dating myself. I remember back in the day, it's like you go to a restaurant, smoking or non smoking section. You go on an airplane, uh, smoking or non smoking section. Uh, it, it didn't matter. I mean, and yeah, the, the it didn't science. It a magical barrier. <laughs> I know it. it uh, you got the second answer. I, I never smoked, and but in college I DJed at bars, and there were nights I'm like, crap. I I, I think I smoked four packs tonight, and I never smoked. <laughs> but it was the secondhand smoke. So yeah. um, I remember when that the pushback, and then now I, I can't even people that were ardently against it. And I'll admit, I was against the, well, but people go there to smoke and and you know what you're walking into. Um, I couldn't imagine now walking into a bar and being inundated with smoke. I mean, DJing back in the day, uh, I would walk into the garage and I'd take my clothes off in the garage because I couldn't take them in the house and you went right and showered because you smelled that bad. Hey. Oh yeah, I, I was, I'm still old enough to remember smoking or non-smoking sections uh, in, in restaurants as well. And it, it's yeah, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at some magical barrier of the section. And the people who went, you know, would go out for some sort of dining experience would end up getting a lot more than they bargained for in the secondhand smoke. And that that really led to that effort to just give clean indoor air. Every, I mean, it is a a fundamental belief of ours that everyone has that right to breathe the clean indoor air. Well, especially over the years when science has shown what secondhand smoke does. and It is very damaging, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember it's like, because I, and granted, I, I didn't smoke back then, other than I was taking in the secondhand smoke a lot. I'm like, the only difference was you're using a filter. <laughs> I didn't get the filtered smoke. Um, but you mentioned the 12 or 14 times to quit. So going back to the kids and going back to getting the information out there, because um, there's really a two-pronged approach. It's getting kids the information to make a good decision before they start, and then the cessation side. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about those two different aspects of prevention and cessation because they are very different and they have some different nuances. We're talking with Andrew Horn Coalition Program Director, tac- uh, Tobacco Free North Dakota. This is Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270.
Super Talk. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve Bakken. We're talking with Andrew Horn, Coalition Program Director, Tobacco Free North Dakota, and uh, cessation versus prevention. Uh, prevention side first, that's really focusing on uh, a lot of the kids and trying to get the message out there, Andrew, that um, bad idea, don't start it in the first place because it's a lot easier than quitting and the cessation process much longer, more entailed. So how do you focus in on the kids on, on preventing, getting that message out to prevent uh, tobacco use or nicotine addiction to begin with? Well, the biggest way to, to help prevent them from ever starting is giving them the education about what the what the products can do, um, what tobacco can do to the body. And it's, it's more than just uh, the education in the 90s about smoking is bad for your lungs. We know more about what the nicotine can do to your brain, can do to your circulatory system, can have a whole of body uh, damage. And, and when we give them that information, I, I can't tell you how many kids have come up to us saying, I had no idea, you know, this did that to my body or this did that to, to something else. So it really, really has helped. Um, our education really has helped other kids stop. But there are those who still end up needing the cessation aspect, and that is where TFND partnered with Truth Initiative to bring This Is Quitting to North Dakota to, to specifically focus on the vaping issue here in the state. Uh, it's, a tech, it's a free, confidential text-to-quit quit line. Young people 13 to 24 can text in using vape free ND to 88709 and they get good quitting resources that have been proven to significantly increase their chances of quitting rather than if they try and do it on their own. And the vaping has become so prevalent. What we found out is uh, the vaping side of stuff much more dangerous than actually the smoking side because it's the quicker delivery, the heavier delivery. Uh, you're getting more of that product, and uh, there's all kinds of other stuff that's creeping in there as well. So the vaping side has really gotten dangerous. Plus, it, it's easier to access, easier to conceal, uh, which means it's easier to get addicted to. Yeah, it is. It is. It doesn't have that traditional cigarette smell. Um, so it, it, you know, it smells fruity. People wonder what something is, and it's a little easier to excuse away um, when when they smell something like that. And this, the these products are so. You're right. So strong, and the nicotine that's in them is just able to hit the brain so quickly. And what nicotine does is it rewires the pathways, the reward pathways in the brain to make you crave more. And that rewiring happens faster with this type of nicotine on top of the younger they start, the easier it is for them to get addicted. So it's really a, it's really a one-two punch that we're, we're working to get across the state and get that information out so that we can prevent this vaping problem from getting any worse. So as far as the cessation side of stuff, you've got this is quitting the the vape-free ND. Text that to 88709. Uh, What's the tobacco quits hotline? So uh, I believe it's 1-800-ND-QUITS, or you can just uh, go online and search up the ND quit line. We have one of the best quit lines in the country for for those trying to, to quit these products. It is very, very good and, and run by the state. So that is something that is another avenue. Um, this is quitting again, focuses on 
those younger people for vaping age 13 to 24. Uh, so if you're outside of that age range, especially if you're older, the ND quits line would be a great second option for you to go to. And then, of course, uh, you mentioned it 12 to 14 times before somebody's successful in quitting with uh, tobacco products. Uh, what are some of the numbers with the vaping? Is it about the same uh, as far as efforts to quit? Do the numbers kind of run out the same way? You know, we're, we're still gathering data on that because it is so new, but we are seeing very similar, um, we are seeing very similar numbers. And one of the bigger problems is that the vaping is hitting some of these kids younger and, and it's really making that, making that dependence take hold and it's being even, making it even harder to quit because they started at 11, 12, 13. So that's really why we're trying to, to get ahead of this and getting those cessation resources to those age groups. I know it may sound scary to some people hearing that they needed as young as 13, but I mean, that, that, is, that is the age group of kids that unfortunately is getting a hold of some of these products. A lot's changed. Uh, givingheartsday.org uh, if you want to give to Tobacco Free North Dakota. Uh, also, what's your website? Our website is tfnd.org, and we'll have a giving section up there as long as our, as well as our social media pages. We've got a nice QR code you can scan. Uh, which will lead you right to the giving portal. Andrew, thank you. Uh, We'll have you on again. Uh, A lot of information. And and really, tobacco use has changed, uh, not only in North Dakota, but across the country with the the inception of vaping and uh, how prevalent that is. Uh, This is Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. KLXX AM, Mandan Bismarck, a Town Square media station. Broadcasting from the VIEW Community Credit Union Studio. Recorded. Sean Hannity, weekday afternoon, starting at 2 on Super Talk 1270. Talk of the Town, brought to you by Big Boy. Just get in line, it moves fast. Dakota Pharmacy and Dakota Natural Health Center. We're here to help you stay well. Trademark Realty. Peak Automotive and Service, and Silver Ranch. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve Bakken, and joining us on the program, Ken Royce. He is the program manager for the Missouri River Joint Water Board. Ken, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. So I want to talk a little bit about the Missouri River, but before we get into that, uh, talk a little bit about the Missouri River Joint Water Board. Who makes up that water board? Because, of course, in North Dakota and Bismarck-Mandan area, the Missouri River is such an integral part of our lives here. Uh, who makes up that joint water board? Well, Steve, I'm sure you know, most of your listeners know, every county in North Dakota has a county water board. So there's a Birdie County Water Board, and, uh, you know, every county has it. Those people are appointed by county commissioners, typically three to five members. Uh, so the state law, a state, a state does allow uh, uh, county water boards to form together if they have a common interest and call joint water boards. Like the Surf River Joint Water Board and Red River Joint Water Board. And now we have a Missouri River Joint Water Board. We formed that about 2005 or four. It's been a number of years ago. Uh, we opened up membership to any county who touched the river system. So if the county touched the river or one of the lakes, they could join our joint board, and it gave us a chance to have a unified voice when we talked to the state or the Corps of Engineers and the Bureau. You know, up until then, every county had different issues, and we talked to the Corps, we talked to the state. We might not have the same voice or say the same thing. You know, that wouldn't be uncommon. Stretch that river up and down 
you know, North Dakota, you got different views on how that river should be managed. So the Joint Water Board is made up of the counties. At least the the, uh, the eligibility is there for the counties to join the board. Now, not every county has joined. I think we've got maybe eight or ten counties out of twelve. That it's, I think it's ten counties out of twelve now that are members of that Joint Water Board. And you may find it's interesting, Steve, but last legislative session, uh, the legislature changed the, the law a little bit, and they said that every county water board should be part of a joint water board based on what water shed you were in. So conceivably, uh, Stark County or Adams County that doesn't touch the river, Hedinger County, Stark, you know, those counties out west, southwest, they don't touch the river, but they're part of the Missouri River drainage basin, so conceivably they could be a future member of our joint water board. That'll probably happen down the road, I suspect. A lot of different users, a lot of different uses for the river. And uh, I want to come back and talk a little bit about the history of the dams in North Dakota, because uh, whether it's Garrison Dam or Wahe Dam, uh, we do have a, because we can tend to be a little bit arid at times, um, dams are vitally important. Now, when you're talking about the Missouri River, uh, it really comes down to Garrison and Wahe Dam. Those are kind of the big ones, uh, but they have multiple uses. Uh, so a lot of different purposes for those. And uh, give us a little history, a little background on how those came into being. Well, you know, the Missouri River has flooded ever since forever. The Missouri River has flooded the bottomlands around in the Bismarck Mandan area and all up and down the basin. <clears throat> and that's why Bismarck didn't develop South Bismarck until, until after the dams were built. But the dams weren't built because there was a particular interest in protecting South Bismarck or Mandan or Washburn or Williston. It wasn't built for that purpose. It was built because. We had such tremendous floods down in the Kansas City, Omaha, Council Bluff areas in the, in the early 1940s. In fact, the 1943 flood was what prompted Congress to pass the 1944 Flood Control Act, which would authorize the dams. And, you know, Roosevelt at that time, we were in the middle of a war, where I guess it was winding up toward the end of the war. I think it was a national security issue to keep those, keep those cities safe and keep the interstate, that point was the interstate, but keep the highway system from being flooded on, a, on an annual basis. So when Omaha got flooded and Kansas City got flooded and went all the way to St. Louis, that's when Congress acted and they passed the 1944 Flood Control Act. Um, that's the impetus for it. And of course, uh, they didn't build any dams downstream. You know, the basin is divided into an upper basin, that's the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming, and a lower basin, that's Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska. And of course, Missouri. So we have the upper basin and the lower basin. The lower basin didn't have any dams built because there's no there's no good geographical locations for a dam. You know, it's more flat. The dams were all placed in the upper basin, and that's where the water flow would come in and get contained. And so there's a long history of negotiations. Of course, it happened so fast, but there was a lot of negotiations going on and um, where those dams should be placed. And uh, Steve, I'm happy to tell you what those negotiations were. If you want to go down that road. And, uh, that maybe the way you want this direct to go? Ab- absolutely, because, uh, you know, it does play into a big part of our history here in North Dakota because uh, one of the areas that was flooded due to the negotiations with the dam for um, for Garrison Dam was native lands. So uh, MHA Nation, uh, the tribes, lost a lot of that property. So uh, how did those negotiations go back then? Well, you had two federal agencies involved. You had the Bureau of Reclamation. And, you know, the Bureau of Reclamation, they were started around 1902, you know, they're back in the beginning of the 1900s when they were started. Their, their, their mission was to, re, to populate the West. And so they were interested in providing 
water and power to get people to move to the western side of the United States. And then you had the Corps of Engineers, who started when Thomas Jefferson was president. Their goal started out as navigation. And that's, that's evident today, right? One of their goals is promoting and maintaining interstate navigation for commerce. But later, during as years went by, they got a congressional mandate to be involved in flood control. So you had two federal agencies involved. They each had a different vision. Uh, General Pick, his name was, um, I think it was his first name, uh, I think it was Eugene Pick, or Glenn, yeah, Eugene Pick. He was out of the Omaha district. He was a general um, from the Corps of Engineers. His vision was a series of dams that would um, primarily focus on navigation for the downstream interest, that'd be south of Sioux City, Iowa, and flood control. And not only flood control for Omaha and St. Louis and Jeff City, but flood control for Bismarck and Williston, uh, Pierre, South Dakota. So the focus of the Corps was uh, flood control and irrigation. And then you had the Bureau of Reclamation, led by a gentleman named Glenn Sloan out of Billings, Montana. The Bureau's focus was on using water for consumption, you know, for irrigation and and for municipal and rural water development and for um uh, those type of issues, and power generation. That's not a consumptive use, but for power generation. Well, and that's one thing so, that people don't think about is you know, we've got a, a pretty good, healthy hydro industry here in North Dakota, and people don't think about that quite often. Well, we can come back to that because that was one of the that was that became one of the main focuses of of uh, building the dam. They did build six, seven of them. You know, if you count Fort Peck, Fort Peck was already built before 1944, but it got grandfathered into the program. Fort Peck is up in the Montana side, of course. But uh, the program got passed. They call it the Pick-Sloan Act after the two gentlemen, Pick and Sloan. Uh, the formal name was the 1944 Flight Control Act, but uh, it got changed uh, in their in their honor later on. I think it was in the 70s they renamed it the Pick-Sloan Act. And uh, it was a kind of a forced marriage between the two agencies. Um, but uh, those two federal agencies became, became the lead agencies. They had different focuses. But they did come together on one common, one agreed-upon plan, which gave us what we have today. Um, I can tell you that uh, when they passed the, the act, they identified uh, seven or eight issues that had to be primary benefits of the dams. And one was water supply, which is good for North Dakota, right? Water supply in the upper, all the, all the states wanted a steady water supply. Um, we would have had that supply regardless if they built a dam because the Missouri River doesn't go dry. But nonetheless... Water supply and pounding water for water supply was one of the focuses. Uh, irrigation development, which is a big, big issue for the state of North Dakota, was at the time and still is. Uh, power generation was a focus. Flood control. Uh, flood control was kind of a bigger interest downstream, but certainly Bismarck, Mandan, and Williston, and uh, all the communities along the North Dakota side, North Dakota and South Dakota got that benefit. Uh, recreation was kind of an afterthought at the time. But when you build a dam and build a lake, you have recreation, so that became an authorized purpose. Uh, navigation, which is we don't have that in North Dakota, and then fish and wildlife enhancements. So those were the those were the stated purposes of, of the dams and, and building the system. We're talking with Ken Royce. He is the program manager for Missouri River Joint Water Board. This is Talk of the Town on Super Talk twelve seventy. Super Talk twelve seventy. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. 
You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve Bach along with Ken Royce, uh, Program Manager for Missouri River Joint Water Board. We're talking about some of the uses uh, for the Missouri River. Um, so you mentioned uh, irrigation. You mentioned some recreation. You mentioned power generation. Uh, you mentioned uh, having a usable water source. Um, so what are those uses of the Missouri River locally who uses the river, and, and what's the process to access and use that water? Well, okay, let's start with accessing and using the water. To get, to take water and use the water out of the river system, it requires a permit from the State Water Commission. Now it's called the Department of Water, Research, water Resources, right? It's, they've changed their name. Essentially, people, most people know them as the State Water Commission. So you'd make your application for what's called beneficial use. You'd find you'd locate a point of diversion and a use of the water. And uh, typically the state of North Dakota has always been very good to work with. They'll, you know, it'd be pretty unusual not to get a permit if you can show a need for the water. Uh, by the way, if you're just to live along the river, you just want minimal, you know, occasional use of the water, you would need a permit. Um, it's been some years since I looked at the statute. At one time, I believe the state would say you could use maybe 12 or 13 acre feet without a permit. So, you know, minimal gardening use or whatever, that type of yard use would need a permit. But but any type of substantial use, you need a permit in North Dakota. There's a process you go through, and uh, it's, not a, it's not a difficult process. You don't have to hire an attorney. You don't have to hire an engineer. You've got to do the paperwork. But we're uh, so, Al- bigger, so so the big me? the bigger projects like uh, a city's use or a energy operation or an agricultural operation uh, those larger uses we're allocated a, a great deal of water out of the Missouri River and we really don't use a fraction of what we could take out of the river correct you know you're right about that and so the bigger users they go through the same process so have a water permit from the state now depending where they take the water out kicks in different requirements. If, if you have a big user, like you take uh, Southwest Water Authority, they take their water out of Lake Chicagoia. Uh, they use an intake as, to a joint uh, joint agreement with one of the industries out there. But let's say you had a Southwest Water or a NAS project. They're going to take their water out of the Lake Chicagoia area. They have to have access to that water. It's not just taking the water, it's having access. To get access to the water takes a permit from the Corps of Engineers. You, know, you have to cross their land. They have a take line. you got to cross their land, and then you have to build your intake according to their specification. But that's that's the way the system works. If you're along the free-flowing river, it's a little less cumbersome because the Corps doesn't particularly have a lot of, um, uh, well, they do. I mean, you still have to cross some core land because there's always a flood zone along the river. So it's between the Corps and the state, and getting access is more of a difficult issue than getting a state permit. But it's all doable. I mean, the Corps is good to work with, too. They're not unreasonable when they try to give you access for a beneficiary use of water. And so that's that's how, and by the way, you asked who used the water. Every community, every rural water district along the river uses that water. And that that's true all the way through the Dakotas, all the way to, as far as I know, all the way down to St. Louis, because it's such a good source of water. Uh, and it's dependable. Um, during the 1930s, every river in North Dakota went dry, except the Missouri River. <laughs> you know, the Missouri River, you think it's drought-proof. Uh, the folks in Colorado Basin, they think the Colorado River was drought-proof, too. But we think, and they were wrong, and maybe we're wrong, too, but we think our river is drought-proof. In the 1930s, you know, everything was going dry. The river, if you go out and stand on the on the bridge by Bismarck, uh, on, a, on any given day, you'll see about 20,000. We measure the water in CFS, cubic feet per second. You'll see about 20,000 CFS go by the bridge. 
well, in the 1930s, it was down to maybe 13,000, 14,000. So, yeah, but, you know, it had an impact of drought, but it's essentially a drought-proof river. There's an ebb. uses that water. The, and, and there's an ebb and flow. Yeah, oh, there, there's an ebb and flow to the those. But, you know, when you talk about drought-proof, though, and you got to take a look at uh, uh, kind of a snapshot in time because I remember, you know, all, it, it, people think about all the flooding issues in the Red River Valley, and I grew up in the valley, and about every 10 years we had a, a major flood event that took place but i remember back in the 80s when you could walk across the red river in grand fork or in fargo and barely get your feet wet except you sunk up to your butt in mud uh but the red was almost not flowing through fargo so when sure. you're when you're talking about a, a drought proof river what plays into that because is it the river itself and the main channel considered drought-proof, or is it because of the dam system that it's considered drought-proof? Well, that's an interesting question, because the Corps has always said, look, this is a great dam. You know, the Corps' position was, uh, North Dakota got a great benefit by these dams, and we did. Flood control is, is undeniably a great benefit for all of us in North Dakota. But they've also said, because of the dams now, we've made that river uh, dependable for water supply. Now, North Dakota's always said, and, and they, they take that, they've made that argument because at one point, and this was a number of years ago, there was a, there was some talk about the Corps charging North Dakota for water out of the river system. And of course, we all objected because they said, look, before you came, you had a dependable water supply. We didn't need the dams to have a dependable water supply. All you had to do is look at the records from 1930s, and you could see that the Missouri River flowed all the time, every year, no matter what the conditions were. And so, you know, to some, to some extent, it's made the river more drought-proof, but it's always been drought-proof. Now, you folks from the eastern side of our state, we call you our east coast and the valley over there. That's a different situation, and that kind of opens a whole door to this issue of the Red River Valley Water Supply Project. You know, this, this pipeline can bring water from, a, from the river system, what we call the Missouri River System, to the, to the valley and, the, and the east side of our state. That's why that project is being built, because... Guys like you and guys that have lived in the valley, you, you can remember those years when you could walk across Red River and it was dry or nearly walk across it. And so, you know, we've got such an abundant supply of water flowing through our state, which is not being used, by the way. <laughs> and it's not being used by anybody. It goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's, of course, it's being used, but it's not really being used. That's a whole different topic of how the rest of the country is looking at this unused water. But it's flowing through our state, not being used, and so Red River Valley Water Supply takes water from from the Missouri River, puts it through a 72-inch pipe. That's under construction now, as you speak, by the way. And uh, you know, they think in about eight or ten years that project could essentially be complete, bring water to the bring Missouri River water to the entire eastern side of the state. And that's and actually that a project. Too. That's actually a project that's had a couple iterations because Garrison Diversion and uh, you know anybody who's spent time up around the McCluskey canals, that was all part of getting water to the eastern part of the state as well. Um, different project, kind of a different methodology, but um, never really came to fruition. How come? Well, this goes back years and years ago. Back to, it goes back to the original 1944 Flood Control Act. And one of the promises made by the, by the Act, now I use the word promise, because it was a promise, it was they said to the state of North Dakota, you give up, and North Dakota gave up oh, close to 500,000 acres of land. You give up this land. This is your best land. You give up this land so we can build these dams, and we'll give you these benefits. And one benefit was water supply to municipalities. They call it MRI, Municipal Rural Industrial. 
And the idea was, let's take water to the Devil's Lake area and let's let it flow down to Cheyenne and get into the, no, get into the Fargo through a natural water course. That was a promise made to the state of North Dakota. That fell through. It, it's been on the drawing board since, since the 40s. Um, but, what, but the reason that it, it really wasn't a focus at that time, the focus was a big irrigation project in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. That's why they started building the Garrison Diversion Project bring water over for irrigation and for water supply. That fell apart. Of course, with the lawsuits of the 70s, that got stopped. Uh, but that was a promise made, and um, it's taken it's taken decades to put that back on the drawing board. And for a long time, in fact, <clears throat> maybe a lot of your listeners don't know this, but in the year 2000, North Dakota reached an agreement with the federal government where the federal government would go, was going to provide $200 million worth of funding to build what's essentially the Red River Valley Water Supply Project. But it would be a federal project. Federal projects mean federal permits and federal requirements and oversight. And that thing got bogged down. And, of course, when North Dakota became able to fund these projects on their own with the oil development money, they, they backed away from the federal dollars and said, we're making this a state project. And so right now... This is a state-funded project without all those federal strings attached to it. And it's going forward now, whereas before, it just couldn't get any traction. It just couldn't get going. You mentioned some of the lawsuits back in the 70s, and, and that kind of plays into some of the downstream and out-of-street interests that play into the Missouri River and how it functions and flows through North Dakota. When we come back, more, uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, Ken Royce, uh, he is the program manager for the Missouri River Joint Water Board. This is Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. Media Talk of the Town with Steve Bakken. Weekday morning starting at 9 on Super Talk 1270 and the free Super Talk 1270 mobile app. Talk of the Town, brought to you by Big Boy. Just get in line, it moves fast. Dakota Pharmacy and Dakota Natural Health Center. We're here to help you stay well. Trademark Realty, Peak Automotive and Service, and Silver Ranch. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve and We're talking with Ken Royce, Program Manager for the Missouri River Joint Water Board. And we're talking about a little bit of the history of the Missouri River and things moving forward. Uh, always an integral part of our lives here in central and western North Dakota, the Missouri River, and across the entire state and the entire region for that matter. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the downstream and out-of-state interests uh, because there's a lot of people that kind of have a claim. So those that may not be familiar uh, in their state constitution, Anybody that's going to take water out of the Missouri River for a project, even though it's allocated, uh, the state of Missouri sues you. It's 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 part of their fabric. They're like they're concerned about the river flowing through their state. Um, I stumbled upon uh, some information uh, about ten years ago, Ken, um, and I did not know this long term solution. One of the plans for growth in the front slope of the Rockies in Colorado in the front range was, hey, we'll just tap into the Missouri River and take all the water that we need from there because, well, the Colorado <laughs> River's running dry. So uh, you talk about that sustainability. There's a lot of people that uh, kind of have their cup out when it comes to Missouri River water. Well, you know, Steve, that's a good point, and we've talked about this. We've had a number of public meetings. We're trying to educate the public about the issues, how important our river is, and we always talk about the downstream interest. Everybody's got their eye on Missouri River, and, and I mean everybody. Uh, if you go to conferences in the West, uh, that comes up all the time now. The thing you're talking about with Denver, the West Slope, the, 
you know, East Slope, uh, that'd be the Denver area. That's been talked about for many decades. I remember it being talked about when I was in college back in the 70s, even, because I did a, we did a senior paper on it. But um, in the 1990s, the Bureau of Reclamation issued a report, uh, and it's called the Colorado River Basin Study. Now, you wouldn't think you'd have to find go to the Colorado River Basin Study to find find out about what they intend to do with the Missouri River, but it's in the Colorado Basin, called the River Basin Water Supply Study, written in the 1990s. One of their options to solve the water was the water issue was, as you said, bring it import. They call it the import option with the Missouri River. And that would bring water not only to Denver, but down to Albuquerque and different places up and down that whole range. Um, and that was back in the 1990s. Now, at that point, at that time, I can tell you they were looking at, uh, I'll throw some numbers out here, and I don't want to get too deep into the numbers, but the, the, the largest permit in North Dakota for use of water is held. Uh, for for consumptive use of water in North Dakota, it's held by the Garrison Diversion folks with the Red River Valley Water Supply. Their permits for 120,000 um, uh, CFS. The um, the Colorado study was for 600, so five times the number. And that was back in the 1990s. And uh, so, what is it today? 30 here we are, 30 years later, right? So back in the early 1990s, they said we need a minimum of 600,000. Uh, so that's a big issue. That's that's quite a draw out of the river. Um, and then not only that, but the state of Kansas has got their own study on the board. You know, the Ogallala Aquifer has been mined. You know what I mean when I say mined. They, they draw that water out at such a great rate that it can't replenish itself, and land is subsiding out there, and the water levels are dropping. That's a decade-old problem, but it continues to happen. The state of Kansas wants to build a canal, to bring water out of the Missouri River to replenish that aquifer. Now, they're not talking uh, 600,000. They're talking, uh, if I recall the numbers, let me pull the numbers up. They're talking, I believe it's uh, 4,000, 5,000 CFS. They're in the thousands of CFS. Uh, and let's convert that to acre feet because most people talk in terms of acre feet. That'd be 4 million acre feet. Uh, now we're talking about a big draw out of the river. At some point, <clears throat> um, and the state of Missouri maybe not all wrong. At some point, we took pretty straws in that river. What's it going to do for up, us folks upstream here? Uh, there used to be a saying, I'd rather be upstream with a shovel than downstream with a permit. But that's not true anymore because the people who have the permits own the water. <laughs> and then, no matter how far upstream you are with your shovel, if you don't own the water on paper, you don't own the water. And so North Dakota has to be careful. We make sure we get our share of that water. We don't care. Who uses it once it leaves our borders? Put it, to, put it to the best use you can downstream, but don't take so much water that it's not, you know, there's not enough in there left for us to use on paper. So That's when you start, issue. so when you start looking at some of these other plans, and that that was kind of my point on the sustainability, where you know they say that uh, it's a a drought-proof river. Well. Not if everybody starts taking water out of it because, you know, they used to once upon a time say the same thing about the Colorado because of all the snowfall and snow melt that went into the river system. But if you started pulling all these different projects out, really that uh, is it long term sustainable with some of the sizes of those projects? Because uh, once you start with those projects, then where does it stop? Well, I think there's a certain amount of common sense that it has to be put in this. I mean, if we're talking about looking at it, we have a concern about the Kansas Aqueduct study. That's the four million acre feet. That's a legitimate concern that we all want to look at and make sure that there's enough water in the system for all the states, not only the state of Kansas. But uh, what gets a little bit ridiculous, so let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, the Garrison Diversion folks put a permit in to take 20 CFS 
of the Missouri River uh, for the for the Red River Valley project. Now, the Red River Valley project is going to take more than 20 CFS. It's going to take 160. They use 20 as kind of uh, putting their toe in the water, and they're going to test the water to see if they get challenged on it. They were wondering if they could invite a lawsuit from the state of Missouri because 20 CFS you can't measure. I told you earlier the river flows at 20,000 CFS. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to try to measure 20 out of 20,000. You can't do it. Uh, we haven't got equipment that, that's sensitive. But the state of Missouri challenged that and took the state of North Dakota, Garrison Diversion in particular, to, to court. Missouri said we, we don't want that withdrawal being taken out of the river system uh, because it starts a cumulative effect. And pretty soon you're going you're gonna to damage our navigation system and our ability, our intakes are going to be, you know, all that, all those arguments are being made by Missouri. They took it to court on 20 CFS and Garrison Diversion prevailed. The judge prevailed and, and Garrison was issued the permit. And so, but anytime, anytime the state of North Dakota tries to take water out of the river system, especially if that water crosses our continental divide, you know, we have a continental divide that runs from the northwest side of the state down to the southeast side of the state, divides us, you know, some of our water flows in the Missouri down to the Gulf and some flows to the Hudson Bay area. That's our continental divide. Anytime we cross that continental divide, we get sued by, by what we call the three ends. Minnesota will sue us, Missouri will sue us, and Manitoba will sue us. They don't want those those entities don't want water taken out of the basin across that continental divide, and for various reasons they all have the reasons they, they get sued, and so that continental divide has been kind of a curse of North Dakota. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you go all through the West and you have water projects that cross continental divides. <laughs> they, they don't get sued, but we get sued. Well, and I know uh, Canada's got a big issue with mixing watersheds and, and uh, mixing different uh, water sources. Uh, they do it under the mm-hmm. guise of invasive species quite often, but um, right. that, that's usually the impetus to their lawsuits. When you're going back to Missouri, wh- where, where's the Missouri impetus come from when, when they file their lawsuits? And like I said, it's in their constitution, their state constitution. They're mandated to do it, uh, whether they think it's a valid project or not, because um, I know one of the big lobbies that's out there are downstream barge traffic, lower Missouri, lower Mississippi River. It's a big industry in support, not necessarily economics. I think it's like six or eight billion dollar industry, which is really small in the economic footprint. But they're relying on that water and those flows to make sure that they can manage barge traffic for a lot of commodities that come out of the upper Midwest. Um, a lot of grain uh, shipping comes out of Minneapolis area, uh, out of the Twin Cities that make it all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so where's the Missouri piece of this? It, it, is it for water use? Is it for long-term sustainability? Is it for some of those industries? Why are they so sue happy and it, to the point where it's right in their constitution? Well, I think I think there's two reasons, or at least at least two. There's probably more than two reasons. But number one is navigation. Navigation is a big issue down downstream down, downstream states, lower basin states. So it's not it's not an issue in the upper basin states. We don't we don't have it, but they have it. And not only navigation in the state of Missouri and Kansas and Iowa along there, but navigation as that water pertains. And you said it, Steve. You're right on right on the market. As that water gets into the Mississippi system. As you probably know by looking at various articles that have been in the paper over the summer, the Mississippi was in a low, low condition this year. And navigators were just, uh, were hurting. They were really hurting. And they were looking for ways to get more water out of the Missouri River um, to supplement that flow. Uh, when, the, when, the, when the Missouri River hits the um, Mississippi at St. Louis, 
At that point, the Missouri River puts in about 80,000 TFS, and it's joined by water coming out of the Mississippi from the north by about another 120. So when it flows back past St. Louis, it has about 200,000 TFS. That's quite a big number, but those are some big numbers, and they've got to be maintained to maintain that navigation flow. So number one is navigation. Not only not only in the Missouri River system, but the Mississippi navigation system that relies heavily on Missouri River water, heavily. And number two is intakes. All these communities up and down the river have said, look, we built our intakes with an expectation that the water is going to be at a certain level. Well, that's kind of a weak argument because you don't put your intake screen at the top of the river, right? <clears throat> but nonetheless, they say, look, if you start if you start having lower flows and that river level drops, you create sandbars and you create problems and, and, uh, and the water velocity might go down and all these issues come up and you start you know, cessation issues. Those are legitimate. But those are technical problems that can be resolved with the infrastructure improvements. So at least two issues have come to the table. That's the intake, intake uh, integrities and then uh, navigation to dig them, of course. And um, you're right, though, the state of Missouri, they're mandated, by, they're mandated down there to challenge withdrawals from the river. And they do it. So how does that play into the effects of our water use here in North Dakota? It really, it's marginal other than the larger projects that are just being litigated against, correct? But actual water use really doesn't make an impact. Well, you know, in in North Dakota, we have the state of North Dakota issues permits, and they've issued roughly permits to the amount of about 4 million acre-feet. Now, these numbers get kind of confusing, but... They've issued these permits, and they've tied this water up on paper. The, the question is, can you continue to tie it up if you don't use it? Because they don't use that water. The state of North Dakota has issued the permits to put it on paper that we have this right for, let's, let's use $4 million. It's not quite $4 million. That includes all permits of consumptive use. But in 2020, uh, the whole state only used about 125,000 acre-feet, so they used maybe 3% of what we permitted. At some point, somebody's going to come along and say, hey, you've got this water tied up on paper. You've had it tied up now for decades. You've never used it, and we want it released. We want it released on paper so we can use it downstream. We can ship it to eastern, western Kansas. We can ship it to the Denver area or Albuquerque. We can use it, put it to a true consumptive use. That challenge may come yet, um, and that's the challenge from South Dakota and Montana face also. Uh, I think the, the upper basin states have been pretty good about putting that water uh, claim it, making a claim on paper, but we haven't had the ability to use it, and that's going to hurt us. That could hurt us down the road if we don't find some ability to use it. Now, the only way you use water in the West is irrigation. That's where all the water goes. So North Dakota has to, you know, North Dakota has some pretty robust programs on promoting irrigation, but irrigation out of the river, but we can kill two birds with one stone. It, it's a huge economic driver, irrigation. And secondly, it not only puts you know not only it puts that water to use to a beneficial use and keeps it in the state of North Dakota. That's where the big use of water is, and that could be the big use of water in North Dakota. We're talking with Ken Royce, program manager for the Missouri River Joint Water Board. This is Talk of the Town on Super Talk twelve seventy. Super Talk. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. You're tuned to Talk of the Town on Super Talk 1270. I'm Steve Bakken along with Ken Royce. He is the program manager for the Missouri River Joint Water Board. And we're talking about uh, the Missouri River, how it plays into our lives here in North Dakota. And uh, we're talking about some of the users. So uh, 
that comes back to management. We talked about Missouri and how they are a little Sue happy and for some supposedly substantial reasons. Uh, but as far as the management, because um, was there a management system in place before the 1944 Flood Control Act? Uh, and then how is it managed today? How did that go from before the dam system to management through the dams and the reservoirs to today? Well, before the 1944 flood control act, you know, the Missouri River was was, um, was deemed a navigable river, so it had Corps of Engineers management on it. The only difference is, I think, back in the, before 44, the Corps didn't have a take line. You know, after they built a dam, they had a take line where they could run the river system high and low and occasionally uh, spill water onto the adjacent lands. That's the take line, and of course, the take line extends around the reservoir and up and down the river system. So after they built the dams, now there's a take line. Now to get water out of the river or the lakes, you have to cross that take line area, and that's an access issue. Um, when they built the dams, I mentioned earlier, there was kind of a, a conflict between the Bureau and the Corps, who's going to do what and who's going to run what. Well, the Corps ended up getting management oper- operational um, authority on the dam. They operate the dams. The Bureau of Reclamation got the authority to allocate. At that time, they got to the ability to allocate water the big irrigation projects, and they got the ability to allocate power. You know, since then they've lost that ability to allocate power. Now we have WAPA, but at that time, the Corps got the power allocation and the water allocation. The Corps got the management. And to this day, the Corps does manage the system. They determine um, the flows and the levels of the lakes and who gets what. Uh, what. When I say who gets what, I mean which state gets the water and when they get it. Uh, every year they do an annual operating plan. They tell the states in a public meeting. They do two a year back. They tell us in the state of North Dakota how they intend to operate the system, and and that's the management of the system. The state of North Dakota and all states along the river still have the right and the authority to issue permits, but now those permits are, you know, what good is a permit if you can't cross the take line? You have to have access from the Corps to get to the water. So that's how how the system is managed today. So there's a little bit of a federal piece, a little bit of a state piece. How does that come down to local jurisdictions? Uh, because, you know, like the city of Bismarck, does that go through the state or, or a Mandan or a Washburn that wants to take water out for a project or for municipal use? Um, how's that system set up? Well, it does go through the state. <clears throat> so Bismarck, of course, has a state permit, so does Mandan. But Bismarck also has to have <clears throat> core approval to put, put anything in the river system. <clears throat> Pardon me. If you're going to go out and put stuff, put anything, anything physical into the river or take anything out of the river, you know, the Corps wants to, wants to have management of it. You know, if you're dredging or if you're depositing material, you have to have federal permits to do that. Rip wrapping along the bank, that's all federally regulated. So obviously there's a federal component to it, but the permit itself is for the state of North Dakota. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the state of North Dakota typically in time is going to give everybody a hard time. They want that water put to a beneficial use. And so they're pretty they're pretty agreeable in issuing permits. I mean, maybe that's not the right word, but they're pretty good to work with the state of North Dakota. And I wouldn't say the core is hard to work with. It just those are additional hoops you got to jump through. It takes time, uh, and if you're not careful, if it's a big project like the Garrison Divergent project, now you're tied in and doing environmental studies and engineering reports and a whole. You know, Garrison spent over twenty million dollars doing studies to satisfy the federal government on this project that it was feasible and, and uh, environmentally safe. And that money, you know, the average person, the average community is not going to spend $20 million, but that's a little different type of a project. Well, okay, so you mentioned the, the threshold early on. What What is that threshold? Because if somebody wants to just tap into 
um, some irrigation. Maybe you're a farmer and you've got some uh, uh, different crop needs and you need a little more irrigation. Or if you're just doing uh, irrigation for your yard. Or What's the threshold where you tick the box and now you have to go through a, a, a larger permit process? Well, i tell you what it used to be, and I don't know what it is today because it's been a lot of years since I looked at it. <clears throat> in a previous life, I did work for the Water Commission many years ago. It used to be 12 and a half acre feet. So if you if you could use 12, and that was out of either a surface source or a groundwater source. You could you could take 12 and a half acre feet out of, a, out of the system, out of a water supply area, and not have to worry about a permit or violating a law. Now, that was use of the water. And 12 and a half acre feet, that means you could cover 12 acres one feet deep, right? That's 12 and a half, that's 12 acre feet. Uh, that's a lot of water. That's uh, an acre foot, 350,000 gallons of water. So it's a lot of water if you had a, if you had a garden next to the river. Uh, that's not the issue anymore. The issue is you've got to make sure you don't violate a federal law by crossing that take line. That's different than, than using the water. So if you're along the river system, I, I think the best thing to do is contact your county water board, and they'll advise you, here's the permits you may or may not need. If you're on the tributary, unless you're in a hot river or near the mouth there, uh, you'd probably probably be okay. I don't think the take line goes back into the mouth of the heart, and of heart. But, you know, the county water board can tell you exactly what, what you would need to do to comply with the state laws and the federal laws. Keep yourself out of trouble. Ken, thank you very much. A lot of great information there. Uh, of course, if somebody has uh, any questions, how do they contact the Missouri River Joint Water Board? Well, we have a website. Uh, all you got to do is punch in Missouri River Joint Water Board, and, uh, and we have a Facebook site. But the website gives you the phone number and the contact information. And we're always happy to do public meetings. We had some plans for this, this year yet in the western central North Dakota talking about Missouri River. So watch. KLXX AM, Mandan Bismarck, a Town Square media station, broadcasting from the View Community Credit Union Studio.